This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer Geraldine de Reuter. She's an author and the creator of the blog, The Everywhereist. Her book, All Over the Place, Adventures in Travel, True Love, and Petty Theft, was published in 2017, and I've wanted to speak with her for a while now, so it's a great joy to welcome her to the podcast. Hi, Geraldine. Hi, how are you? I'm good, and this is just such a joy for me. I've been laughing with you, with you, uh, for a good long time. I've also been holding you my can, face. You and can saying, say you were laughing at me. It's okay. You can say that. <laughs> I, I have to say, many times I was laughing at you, but mostly I was laughing. I, I, I sort of feel like I was afforded the opportunity to see the world through your eyes. So let's talk about that. I mean, you run the Everywhereist, a blog that you started in. 2009. And along the way, you've garnered lots of awards for being a great website. And you got a book contract. And it's pretty much every writer's dream come true, your story. But let's break it down a little bit for people. Because I've read, for instance, that what you originally intended when you started the blog is not at all what you're writing right now. And it became a very different beast. So let's talk first about that early intent. When you sit down to write and you do it so publicly. What did you envision when you started the blog? You know, it's <laughs> it's been such a long journey now. Um, yeah, it was mm-hmm. actually 2008, I think, that I started. It was 13, no, please, not 13 years, but yeah, it was 13 years now, which is terrifying. So I was in my, I was in my 20s, and I'm now 41. So let's just put that terrifying perspective of Mm -hmm. my own mortality into place. (laughs) But when I first started, I had just gotten laid off from my job. And I was a copywriter and game content developer at a gaming company called Cranium, which you might have played before. Uh, It's a game designed to make you fight with your friends. And so, <laughs> uh, and so I worked there. I worked there from kind of my early mid twenties uh, into my late twenties. I got engaged while I was there. I met all these wonderful friends while I was there. People I'm still close to today. And then I went on vacation with a friend of mine, and I received a text that we had all been laid off. So yeah. I was just adrift. And I didn't know what to do. And so I was freelancing and trying to figure out what to do next. And my then fiance, now husband, was traveling a ton. And he said, you know what, why don't you, why don't you come with me on some of these work trips? And we'll, we'll just, we'll figure it out. But why don't you come with me? Because otherwise we're not going to see each other at all. So I started traveling with him and... It was just supposed to be for like a few weeks, and then that turned into a few months. 
And all the while, you know, I was doing freelancing and this concept of being adrift while you are literally in this state of motion, you know, felt very, it feels very poetic now. At the time it was, I was just, I had no idea what was going on with my life or my career. And he was the one who said, why don't you start a blog? Because this was 2008 everyone had a blog, like literally everyone. This was the Mm -hmm. time to do it. So I start this blog and at first it was, okay, well, I'm going to be informative because, uh, you know, I'm traveling a ton, so I should have an informative travel blog. That's what it should be. And the thing is, all the other travel blogs out there were way better at it than I was, just schooling me <laughs> left and right, right? We had like yeah. the the travel bloggers who could do the budget travel and and the, you know, the long-term hiking across, you know, intense areas. Tra- I mean, just, just anything, you name it. They were covering it in, in traveling with pets, traveling with children. And I was like, yeah, you know, insert Muppet <laughs> sound here. Like I did not know what I was doing. And so I tried to figure out what my differentiating factor was. Like, what's the thing that makes me me? Mm-hmm. And this comes up a lot, doesn't it? Right. Whenever you're writing, yep. whenever you're doing anything, whenever Every you're pitching, time. like what's what's your unique angle like what makes you special so my my big differentiating factor was really time like i've always been fortunate enough that i've had a lot of free time you know my my partner my husband and i we don't have kids he's always been super supportive he's always really been a great guy to to live with. And I, I actually told him this morning, I said, you know, I'm really glad that we share a life together. And so I realized I can blog every day. It doesn't have to be great. doesn't have to be long, but I can put a blog post up Monday to Friday. So that's what I decided to do. And the other differentiating mm-hmm. factor that I realized I had was I didn't know what I was doing. Which sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but no. if you think about it, everybody else was like, I'm a professional. I can tell you this, that, and the other. And I'm like, yeah, you guys want to hear how I got scammed? Like, you want to hear how <laughs> yeah. I got lost? You want to hear how I yep. spent $50 on a cab ride that should have cost me $4? Because I'm about to tell you. So I was, one, a walking disaster and telling everyone about it, and two, I was there, right? People could rely Mm -hmm. on it. And Mm -hmm. at some point I started, like you start to get stressed out and burned out because you're churning it out and nobody's there, right? You are playing Mm -hmm. to an empty concert hall day after day after day. And at some point, (laughs) you know, I remember I would wake up every morning And I would ask Rand, my partner, I would say, what am I doing? And he said, just keep writing. And I said, yeah, but where's it going? And he said, just keep doing it. Oh, such good advice. I know, right? (laughs) Honestly, I hit the jackpot there. (laughs) But every, every morning, you know, whenever I thought that, I would just tell myself, okay, just keep writing. So it was almost two years to the day. I was literally thinking about giving up. I was looking at, you know, all these random job listings that I knew were going to make me miserable. And 
I got listed on Time Magazine's top 25 blogs of the year for 2012. Mm -hmm. And suddenly things started to shift. And now people were reading Mm -hmm. my blog. And that was a big turning point. And so I... I was like, okay, maybe there's something here. And so <laughs> I, 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 kept, I kept doing it and I kept at it. And I think that's one of the things is just sheer stubbornness for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And here's the funny thing about my career. Every time I start to get burned out, something will happen that will drag me back in. I mean, it's literally just Michael Corleone. You know, I think I'm out and then woof. So, um, <laughs> so I started to get discouraged. And I, I had a situation where I had an, an indie publisher who wanted to publish my book. And then they disappeared on me. They, they folded. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I just need to take a break from this. And so I, you know, I published an article that was totally different than anything I had done. I published it for Marie Claire. And out of nowhere, this agent pinged me and she said, hey, I, I, saw, I saw this piece and then I saw your blog post about how your last publisher folded and how you're kind of adrift right now. So, hey, there's a funny upside to being transparent, which we can talk about in depth. Yes. But she and I, she and I met a couple of times, and um, I met a few other agents, but nobody clicked the way that Zoe and I did. Um, and she's been Zoe Sandler with ICM, or I guess now ICMCAA, if you're following that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's been mm-hmm. my agent ever since. She did a fantastic job uh, orchestrating an auction when my book sold. Uh, if you're, uh, I'm sure you are familiar with that process, obviously, but we can talk about that for your audience in further detail. Yeah. But, and so it's been this crazy wild ride. And I recently just told her, hey, now I'm thinking about switching to fiction. Um, so... <laughs> Well, we'll get we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. Let's, that, so, yeah, that's pretty exciting. You obviously didn't get the memo that you're supposed to stay in the one lane. I, I find that I a know. lot in my interviews that nobody <laughs> got that memo. So, so it sounds like you're really comfortable. And if you were giving advice to a young writer, it would be let things reveal themselves. Like just just keep doing it. I tell people all the time, you've, you've got to write all the time. It's, it's sheer volume, sheer tenacity, yeah. and sheer stubbornness that is part of the thing. But along the way, you'd pick up some skills. So I don't know if it's a huge assumption that I'm making to say that you developed your voice along the way with this tenacity. When I look back, when I go back in the 164 pages on your blog, um, <laughs> that's a lot of blog posts. Uh, but your voice has developed, changed. You know, maybe you always had this voice, direct, hilarious, honest, feminist, and not the least bit of afraid of a good skewering when a good skewering is needed. So my audience is writers, and voice is perhaps the hardest tool to sharpen in the writer's toolbox. So are you saying that your voice got sharpened with use, or did you take some lessons? Did you read up? Talk about the, the development of the voice that you have. It's, it's very, I could pick it out in a crowd at this point, I think. Oh, wow. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> um, you You're know, welcome. Having anybody, having anybody compliment your voice is, is or, or even just to acknowledge that it's distinct is probably the most deep compliment I think a, a writer can get. I think you hit it on, the nail on the head when you said, you know, sharpening through use. I also do think that, you know, more structured 
learning can be beneficial, but I'll be perfectly honest. I, outside of, of school, I haven't done any of that, but I have really spent a lot of time figuring it out and it kind of just happened. And a lot of the way it happened was trial and error and seeing what worked and seeing what didn't. And if you go back to the early pages of my blog and there are literally, I think there's something like 1500 blog posts. There's well over a thousand. I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go to the early pages of the blog, it is such a bizarre thing to read. It is honestly, I don't know who wrote those. I don't know who that person is. I really don't. She's like, she's trying all this crazy stuff. And like, there's one where it's product reviews. Like what? Mm -hmm. Like you're Mm -hmm. reviewing lip balms. And then she like, there was one where I tried to do comics because that was big. Everybody was drawing comics back then. It's just all over. Yeah. (laughs) And and I keep it up there. And part of the reason I keep those up there, they're very dated, right? They don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason I keep those up there is because they're a great reminder, not just to me, but, you know, if anybody gets into the weeds, you see, oh, this doesn't happen overnight. This right. this reveals itself slowly. And it reveals yeah. itself through trying everything, throwing it all on the wall and seeing what sticks. Absolutely. And it's such great advice. And, and I literally, I advise people to go to the blog and go back to those first pages and see. And watch how she did it. Watch how she evolved. Watch how the voice evolves. There's so much to be learned along the way of writing, and writing has consequences. Memoir writing in particular has consequences, and we're going to get to a bunch of those I've noticed along the way in your work. And you, you're you the very definition of living out loud. You, both you and your husband have blogs, you've written a book, you've shared your tale on many platforms. So let's talk about this concept of living like this and its consequences. These days, I work as a memoir coach and memoir editor, but I've written and published, and I've learned that I do not know how I feel about anything until I write it down. And when I say that to my clients, sometimes they laugh nervously. I think they think they're in the hands of a mad woman. But I say, no, no, this is how we talk. We say things like, oh my God, I went to this restaurant last night. You got to go. It was like so great. It was great. Meaning you learned nothing. But if Mm -hmm. I am forced to write it down, I'm forced to consider, to annotate, to reflect, And when I say I don't know how I feel about anything until I write it down, I include my beloved family members in that, you know, and Faith (laughs) and the dog. And I I can tell you, my husband's great, but you don't learn anything by that phrase. I wonder if you too can just talk a little bit about learning how you feel while you write. I'd like people to actually trust me that this is true when I say it. So why don't you back me up here, sister? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And I think I I'm, I might get a little bit emotional about this because this feels like it has very much like a therapeutic component to it, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Yep. So the thing that I always say is whenever I have an experience and a lot of times, you know, if, if it's a traumatic or a bad one, I always say, you know, I'm upset about this, but I can't really say why. And I, I'm I'm going to need some time. And and the thing that I always tell, you know, people is I have a slow processing time with emotional stuff. And that could mean that it's going to take me minutes or hours or years. And that's about things that are good and things that are bad. 
I don't really know how Mm -hmm. I feel until I get time to sit back and reflect on them. Mm -hmm. And a big way that I process things is exactly the same way. I sit down and I write about it. And that was really true, I will say, of a lot of, of trips that I took. You know, if we had so much of my life was playing out on the road, you know, my father lived in Germany for my entire life. We lived on two different continents. That's kind of a pretty intense experience for a kid to like never actually share a roof with their parent, never Mm -hmm. share a home country with their parent. So traveling meant that I was changing kind of my relationship with him because I was seeing him more and I was kind of understanding him better. And so now Mm. I had this blog where I was writing about my relationship with my father, which is something that I had never explored outside of, you know, this one-to-one relationship with him. I had never, Mm -hmm. you know, people didn't know about my dad. A handful of my friends had happened to meet him, but it really kind of drew everything out and it forces you to put to words your feelings and what a Mm -hmm. like it's kind of a miraculous thing to do and if you know if we're if we're going to get into the weeds about it this is something that psychotherapists tell you to do when you're trying to process Mm -hmm. something if you're really angry at someone what do you do you're supposed to write them a letter you don't have to send it you're supposed to write them a letter. And I think it is the way in which, you know, those of us who are inclined to write, it is how we can process things and how we can, you know, voice our emotions. I think I agree completely. And and you have a, a remarkable range of topic. I mean, I don't think that there's a, a topic that you haven't written about. I've seen you write from travel to writer's block to Mike Bloomberg's meatball recipe. So, um, and the wild, unbelievably fabulous love for your husband. But then there's this other topic that you've taken on, which is your brain tumor. And I've got to assume that that taught you something new about the consequences of writing memoir. I've seen, I've read some interviews. I've I've read the, the copy about it. It's beautiful. It's touching, but it's also wildly generous. So when you took it there, your storytelling there. What other consequences do you think came to you as a writer and perhaps came to others as readers? Wow. First of all, thank you. <laughs> Second of all, it, again, this is one of those things that's strange to think about because it's it's been almost a decade. So, yep. you know, it used to be at the forefront, you know, not to get too much into a pun, but it used to be at the forefront of my mind a little bit more. (laughs) And now Mm -hmm. it's receded a bit. But when it first happened, well, when we first, yeah, it is, it it is, it is good. When it first happened, or when I was first uh, diagnosed with a brain tumor, which turned out to be non-cancerous, it's a pilocytic astrocytoma. But I was having very bad migraines, and we weren't sure what was going on. So I, I got an MRI, and they found a brain tumor in a pretty inconvenient location. Basically, put your finger right between your eyes, and then imagine about three inches deep. So imagine oh. the absolute base of your brain stretching across a oh. ventricle. Oh, So yeah, so not a great spot. When I first found out... 
so much of my career comes back to my partner, which is real interesting. I think we've really influenced each other's careers. I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't, I was like, man, I don't, I don't really know how to process this. And Rand said, well, you could write about it. And I was like, well, I, yeah, but then what? And he goes, well, you're going to put it on the blog, right? And I said, well, no, Rand, it's a travel blog. And he said, <laughs> no, it's your blog. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So everything shifted in that moment. Like mm-hmm. that post, that time mm-hmm. was where everything started to shift. Yeah. And part, I thought so. Yeah. That was, that was really a turning point. And part yep. of the reason that I wrote those posts. So it is 2012 and I am scouring the internet looking for information just on anything about what is it like to have a brain tumor? What does it mean? You know, and the only thing you find is like stuff from WebMD that says that you have a lifespan of like four weeks, which is super cool. Um, So yeah, it was awful. I did find, I did find one blog, um, and it was run by someone who I later became friends with. Uh, and he has since passed away. But his name was was Chad Peacock. And, and we became really good friends, actually, through his blog. And his was the only resource out there, really. But what mm-hmm. I decided was that I was going to write the blog posts that I wished that I had found. For myself. There you go. Yep. Yeah. I, sometimes, you know, yeah. and it, it sounds really cheesy, but sometimes you have to be, you know, I, I, I told my husband's in search uh, and, and well, he was mm-hmm. in search. He'd get really mad if I said that, any of that, but he was in in kind of the search industry. He's now more broadly in the marketing industry. But I always said, you kind of have to be the search results that you want to find. And so I it's wanted people. Such good advice. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted people to be able to find blog posts when they searched for brain tumor, you know, and and brain surgery and what's it like. I wanted them to find something besides this kind of cold, sterile, you know, WebMD information that was not helpful at all. So I started writing everything about it. Good. It was a hard time and it was it was really hard to write. Um it was hard to mm-hmm. write physically, like I I couldn't really stay awake. I could not get, I could not get my brain to work. Fun fact: when they go in there, woof, yeah, that's that's not mm. not a good time, not easy. Um, no, so that's, no, no. That's when things but, started to shift. Yeah, that's what it felt like reading back through the bulk of your work. Is that it really did feel like a shift? And mm. I'm so glad for you talking about the support of your husband, the support of when he was your partner, when he was your fiance. That there's support all along the way here. Having someone else to who says just writes, having someone else who says write that, having somebody who says, well, that's fine that you don't know, but write it is is essential. If you can't get that at home, you need to get it in a writing coach or somebody, an editor that you trust. And you, what you also got was a lot of feedback. You may I read in a, an interview with you that you make the argument that our stories do not belong to only us, and that once you share your story, others share theirs. And that's what I also saw in your work. People came forward with their own stories, and 
it's a remarkable thing. This is a consequence of writing. And what I say to people all the time is you have to learn how to react. You've got to react to the things that happen to you, but you artists react. That's what we do, either to the things that happen to us or to the what's going on in the world. And it's one of the real, I think, differentiators of your voice. You're very reactive. You have hilarity. You have righteous <laughs> indignation. You got an awful lot of emotion in there. But let's talk about that idea of, of reacting. I teach a course in how to write an op-ed, and I teach people to react. Uh, you have a, a very famous thing that happened to you when you wrote a piece after Mario Batali, the disgraced foodie, offered up an online apology and included a recipe for it, you reacted. And you reacted in a way that is, I'm going to put a link in the transcript to your post about that. The way you reacted is a real statement about Me Too, is a real statement about what women endure, is a real statement about those damn cinnamon rolls that he had the uh, <laughs> questionable uh, logic of including in an online apology. But you reacted. So talk about reacting. It, it's got to begin with some kind of permission or confidence or what? Oh, boy. This, wow. What a question. <laughs> <laughs> I am trying to think of how to even begin to approach this, but I will, I will say a couple of things. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll forgive me, but we're, gonna, we're getting get very deep into my own psychology here, which is that I come from a very big, boisterous Italian family. And I was the first girl born to my generation. Mm -hmm. So there were seven male grandchildren before me. Ooh. And then there was me. <laughs> now, now, that is its own very interesting essay that I will one day write. I hope so. Um, but, yeah, and, and the joke that I always say is basically, you know, everything was fine, and then, boom, she's a girl, and they were like, oh, no, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> now there's a problem, yeah. you know. Yeah. So um, so the there was already so much chaos in my family that I think the socialization around me and, and, and what I was taught was, you're crazy mm -hmm. and you're about to fly off the handle because I was responding to an insane family. Like, my family is off the charts mm -hmm. nuts. I love them. Like, I love them dearly, you know. So that would be the joke that we always say, and actually my husband does this, and like it's our private joke, is we'll be in the family and somebody will ask an open-ended question or there will be a problem, and I will offer a solution and no one will hear it, and I'll say it a few more times and no one will hear it, and then Rand will go, hey, I have an idea, and he will literally repeat what I just said while making un blinking eye contact with me uh -huh. and everyone will go oh my gosh Rand that was such a great idea and I will just flip him off yeah. and so that is our dynamic so there is this idea that I I actually couldn't react mm. in the family mm -hmm. because anytime I did they would say you have too much of a temper mm. you know you are just flying off the handle mm -hmm. let's put that in its own pocket right and then pocket two is I think that that is something that a lot of women experience, yep. right? And it's that you are not allowed to react to things. 
And in a kind of corollary way, I think men are taught that they're not allowed to react to things in um, ways that reveal emotion or vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So we're all trained to have specific reactions or no reactions at all. And so I think it very much is, you know, kind of a form of rebellion. The writing. Um, <laughs> yeah. To, to write mm -hmm. and to react. Yeah. And it is, I think, a terrifying act. And I think it's something that is remarkably difficult to do, mm -hmm. uh, even now, to kind of overcome and to get to that point. But the one thing that has made it a lot easier is the idea of, I'm not the only one seeing this, right? right? And that's kind of what I always tell myself when I'm trying to formulate or trying to come up with a reaction to something. That's kind of the first thing that goes through my mind. I love and that. when the Mario Batali blog post, when I wrote that, I was kind of looking around and I was like, I'm not, I'm not the only one seeing this, right? And sometimes you just need to be the first person to be like, hey, hey, you guys, this is, this is messed up. Right. And then everyone's like, okay, thank you. I thought so too. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you had a million so, hits on that so blog post, the, right? I mean, didn't you get, I mean, you had, a, oh, I, it's extraordinary and, and wonderful oh, and appropriate I, and I was, all that. <laughs> it, it was oh no that was that was crazy oh no it was five million visits to the blog oh. in a week oh it's more than it I was realized. oh good oh it was crazy it was unrelated but I got a f sectional front page op ed in the Washington Post mm -hmm. I had so many people editors from just a bunch of publications contacting me to write for them. Mm -hmm. And I won a James Beard Award yeah. for journalism yeah. for that piece. Yeah. So it was a life changer, uh, definitely. That was a career highlight. And it was funny because, so two things. I, one, almost didn't write that piece. And the reason I almost didn't write it is I had been on the road and I thought that the time frame, too much time had elapsed mm -hmm. because he put that blog, or he put that newsletter out in December, mid-December. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that blog post in early January, yeah. and I just thought that two, the two weeks that had passed were too fast, mm. like too much time had passed. Yeah, too, too long. Um, yeah. Uh -huh. And that was part of the reason why it ended up on my site and no one else's was that I thought it was too late to pitch it anywhere. Yeah. Fascinating. So huh. I, I made the cinnamon rolls. And I had been thinking about writing the post in my head for two days, but I probably sat down, and this is terrible to admit, I probably wrote that blog post in about 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, it reads like it's on fire, that's for sure. It's a great lesson in reacting and the good that came of it. I'm fascinated that it was on your blog. In other words, people should not be afraid to publish where they can, and it gives a great lesson there. So let's talk about the book, because in 2017, you published a wonderful book called All Over the Place, Adventures in Travel, True Love, and Petty Theft. 
And in the publishing trade, this is sometimes called a blog to book conversion. You mentioned in the beginning, you had an indie publisher fall through, and then you got a call from this agent, which is a wonderful thing to happen. And exactly what we want to have happen, especially with this knowledge in our minds now that, you know, sometimes you put things on the blog and you don't go pitch them elsewhere because you think too much time has elapsed. And yet from that, you win a James Beard. From that, you get offers from everybody. So when you make this conversion to writing with a publisher, it can be a bit shocking, especially for bloggers, because suddenly you've got somebody's arm looped over your shoulders and it's called a business, a publisher, and it comes with an editor. So I know we've, we've, uh, we haven't talked about this yet. I want to know what it was like and what pers- people should expect when they've got an editor who's overseeing. You've, you've got a very generous uh, piece on your website where you, you, where you publish a, a deleted chapter from your book and you talk a lot about learning to, to kill your darlings or murder your darlings as Arthur Quiller Couch said. But what else, as we start to wrap this up, can you tell us about the experience of working with another human being after being pretty much on your own for so long as a, as a published writer? There is that little bit of moment of shock about it. I will say that I do have a journalism background. Mm-hmm. It, it was it's twenty years ago now, but I was it was not totally foreign for me to work with editors. And because I've done a lot of copywriting, you know, I've I've always had people, you know, senior editors, senior copy editors. So I was used to my voice not being the final pass. Mm -hmm. And so actually adjusting to the blog, that was the big adjustment. So this shift back wasn't as strange as as it might be for other people, but it, it definitely is very unusual. I will say there's a lot of joy in it. And, mm-hmm. and I would tell people that they need to see that because so much of the time when you are writing a blog, everything in a blog is a first draft, everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so you never get it to that next level because you never get another pair of eyes on it. So working with that other person is just this wonderful opportunity to get it to be better. And you have to be open to that idea that they are working with you and it is not an oppositional relationship. Oh, it is a partnership. I love that. I love that. I, I I had the four finest editors I know in New York on my books and they taught me how to write books and they always made my copy better. Yeah. They always made my copy better. And I say that to people, Absolutely. learn, relax, don't be defensive. So I'm, I will definitely link that space on your blog where you show us so kindly the deleted chapter and you speak so so lovingly of the editing process. You even run a couple of the email exchanges between you and your editor about falling in love with lines and having the editor say, mm, no. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no. no. <laughs> Colleen Laurie at Public Affairs, which is under the Hachette umbrella, mm-hmm. was my editor. And she was just great. She was great. She was really good at being really forthright. And there were a couple of times she said things to me like, hey, look, I think that this was more fun to write than it is for someone to read. <gasps> and it's just about <sighs> being like, okay, yeah. like that's 
that's really, that's good to know. Like, we're on the same page. Our goal is to make a good book. Right. You're not trying to make a bad book. Right. So, like, we're just both trying to get there. But I think it was also, there were moments when I needed to know when to push back. And so my issue was actually too much deferential. I think Colleen will probably disagree. <laughs> but, you know, my my feeling is always if someone comes and tells me something, because my inner critic is so strong, if they come in and they're like, you should change this, I go, oh, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That's way better. Mom. I'll change that right away. Is there anything else that I should do? Do you want me to cut my hair? That's a yeah. good idea. How about makeup? Yeah, no. Any makeup tips? I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think I should? Do you think I should switch to overalls? I can wear overalls yeah. every day. I think I'd look good in overalls. No overalls, okay. <laughs> so, um, so it's that kind of dynamic, right? Where I was like, and so I, I scaled back so much, and then there were a couple times where I was like, oh no, 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 no. The pendulum has swung too far over, and I actually had to like, like put on the brakes and come back and be like, oh no, I. I can fight you on some stuff. And I remember there was some joke. Uh, it's the end of a chapter with my brother. And in the book, it's about how my brother was an aspiring actor in LA and he's now switched to, he primarily does screenwriting and, and kind of more behind the scenes stuff. But I mentioned my brother looks remarkably like Zach Braff. <laughs> and that I, I talk about my relationship with my brother and how he torments me. And the end of the chapter is about how, you know, there will always be this role in my life for this, you know, kind of vulnerable villain and this, this antagonist who I love so much. And it's the role that my brother was born to play. And the last line of the chapter is, I'd cast Zach Braff in the part. <laughs> and Colleen wanted to, and it flows a bit more poetically in the book, obviously, but Colleen wanted to cut that last line about casting Zach Braff in the part of my brother in the movie of my life. And I was like, no, <laughs> I was like, no, I need that one line because it anchors our entire relationship. And it's that last, like, oh, she's ended it so beautifully. No, she didn't. She got a dig in her, at her brother in at the end because they are actually siblings. Yeah. And so it was learning, when do you fight back? Yes. And so I think it is very much a dance and figuring out that balance and that back and forth. Yes, it is. Well, that's wonderful and helpful. And I think we'll, we'll have to wrap it up. But Thank you so much for the generosity of this interview. I'm so grateful, and, and I wish you all the best. I can't wait to see what you do next. I've become a, a big fangirl here. So uh, you can hear me cheering from uh, upstate New York. So thank you, Geraldine. It's been a joy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been absolutely delightful. The writer is Geraldine DeRuiter. You can see more from her at her site, The Everywhereist, online at everywhereist.com. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. 